You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Last week I made a uh, quoted something as two weeks ago actually when we began the series, and I think it's important for us to remember this quote from C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors that we could fall into regarding Satan and his demons. One is to act like they don't exist, and the other is to be unduly and overly interested in them, and they are equally pleased by both errors. This morning, we are not attempting to overemphasize or underemphasize this message. We're just preaching the whole counsel of God this morning, and we are reminding ourselves some things about God's Word and the enemy and how to defeat him, and to remember that we are fighting to win. And so with that said, I want you to turn into this most amazing chapter in Scripture. It's found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Something maybe you're familiar with, Ephesians chapter 6. And as you're turning there and getting comfortable in the Scriptures, I want to take just a moment and begin this message by telling you about a battle that was the turning point in the greatest and most awful war In the history of humanity. It was a fierce war. It was ferocious. It was a final assault of an enemy that was clearly controlled by evil. The night before this battle, men wrote letters, love letters, to their family members. Not knowing if they would ever see them again. Many of these letters were written by men who died in this battle. Because they knew of the severity of the challenge that lay before them. I want to read to you a portion of a Reader's Digest article regarding this battle. Never had there been a dawn like this. In the murky gray light, in the majestic, fearful grandeur, the great Allied fleet lay off Normandy's five invasion beaches and the sea teemed with 5,000 ships. And over the ship's public address system came a steady flow of messages and exhortations. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you have any strength left, fight to save yourself. Another announcement came. We shall die on the sands of France, but we will not turn back. And another one. This is it, men. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket. And this is the end of the line. And then the two messages that men who survived that fateful day remember best. Away all boats, and our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Of course, the battle I'm talking about is is D-Day. And if you've had the distinct privilege of going to New Orleans and visiting that amazing D-Day museum, walking through that building and meeting some of the veterans and survivors, the few that are left, that oftentimes are at the entrance of each exhibit. It's one of the most powerful experiences that you'll have just as far as history is concerned. And the museum takes a full day to really process, and I've just told you a short portion of that story, but I do want to draw your attention to something that I think will be helpful as we enter into this message this morning. And that was the prayer that Franklin Roosevelt prayed. There were some things that he said in his prayer that I think are are, are very compelling to us this morning as we begin to understand the importance of this battle that we're in. So I'm not going to play the whole prayer. It's about a six-minute prayer. I love the words to this prayer. Most presidents will read it oftentimes when that day comes in every year that we remember D-Day. And those who lost their lives, 12,500 of the Allied forces died on that one day in that battle. So take just a moment, listen to the words of this prayer, and just connect, if you will, with an understanding of this battle that we're in. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation. This day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. 
Leave them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Amen. That prayer was prayed over the radio and all Americans heard it on the eve of that battle. So fierce and so ferocious was this battle that over 12,000 men died, as we mentioned earlier. But that was one day. We know it as June 7th, 1944. But I propose to you this morning that the battle we're in is not just a one-day thing. It's every day. You might say for the believer, every day is D-Day. And there's an understanding that each of us must have. And I would suggest to you that we are in the battle for our lives. And for those of you who are alert spiritually. And I recognize that not everybody in the room may be alert spiritually. And to that, I invite you to know Christ, to come to Christ, the anchor of our souls, the one whom we worship and sing about, the God of angel armies, who is by our side this morning, who is going to strengthen us and give us comfort and hope and peace and the armor that we need in this battle. If you don't know him personally, then I encourage you this morning in the invitation time, or at the end of the service, maybe even more flexible for you to come to me or one of our elders or pastors or even anyone you may be sitting near, someone who invited you this morning, and just inquire how you can know more about this Savior we're speaking of this morning. But if you are alert spiritually, if you are, and I believe that many are, then I would say this to you. We are in a day of intense unrighteousness. Our lives and our families and our homes are in a spiritual war zone. And I feel as if sometimes preachers are tempted just to preach the fluff. You know, the stuff that makes you popular. The stuff that everybody probably just kind of wants to hear. The feel-good messages. Can I tell you this morning, I think this might be a feel-good message. It just depends on how you look at it. Because I can assure you, I didn't entitle this series Fighting to Win because I'm concerned about losing this battle. I'm more concerned about helping our church and our church family understand the enemy and what he has planned for our families and our church families. So I want to read to you today three verses that's going to be our spiritual food for today. Boy, is it rich. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Ephesus was the place that the Apostle Paul invested more of himself than anywhere else on the planet. The book of Ephesians, Ephesus. Paul would go into Ephesus and plant a church. He would stay a while. Then he would leave. He would come back to that place and plant another church and stay a while. And then he would leave. And he went back. And he wrote back to the, to the, to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. It's six chapters long. It's an amazing book in, in, in Scripture. Every chapter contains so much truth. Verse chapter number one, he told them of the glories of salvation. In chapter number two, we learn that salvation is by grace, through faith, 
and not of works. Amen? In chapters 3 and chapters 4, we learn about all the convictions of Christian living. In chapter 5, we learn about the Christian home. And then as you begin to read chapter 6, he addresses parents and children and gives some incredible truth about raising our families and about children and the importance of honoring and obeying their parents. I mean, this is an incredible book written by Paul to this church. You'd think he said it all. I mean, there was so much truth. And then you come to the end of chapter 6 and... Man, how much more could he say? But then this word in verse 10 comes, and it's the word, finally. It's an interesting word. In fact, I find that most of the time when we might use this word, if we would use it in such a way, speaking uh, to our families or to a class or to, to a group like this, if we came to a point in the message or into, into, into our speech where we would say, you know, finally, there would be potentially a message behind that word that would be saying this. I've said a lot, and what I've said has been very important, but what I'm about to say is the most important thing. So finally, if you haven't heard anything else I've said, if you've not been listening like maybe you should have listened, it's time to listen now. This is the biggest point. This is the most important point. I've saved the best for last. This is big. This is critical. Finally, he says, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So I want to give you three truths this morning. And these three truths are going to help us to understand the enemy of our souls. Number one, are you ready? Let's jump in. The first point comes from verse number 12. I'm going to preach the text backwards. And I think you'll understand why in just a moment. Number one. We are involved in a war of intense fury. Finally, he says, finally, look, if you would, at verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want to take just a moment and answer three questions in that one verse. The first question we're going to answer is this. Who is the war with? The second question is, where is the war taking place? And thirdly, I want to address this. What is this war all about? So number one, who is the war with? Who is it with? The answer is found in verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You see, flesh and blood is used 16 times in the scriptures, and it's a common biblical expression for humanity. Anytime you see the words flesh and blood in scripture, it's talking about people. So in other words, very clearly here, and on the authority of God's word, he says, our battle is not with other people. This is so important, because so often we think it is. When I sit with people sometimes and begin to discuss the battles they're facing, the problems that they're in, you might ask them the question, hey, well, so what do you think is really bothering you? What, What is the problem? And they have a name on their lips. And it's not the enemy. Well, you see, it's my wife. Well, really, it's just my husband. He doesn't understand. It's my brother. It's my sister. Well, it's my pastor. It's my small group leader. It's my former friend. It's a name on our lips. But the Word of God says authoritatively that our problem is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. Let me say that again. Our battle is not with other people. And all God's people said, amen. Let's say it together. Would you do that with me here? Here we go. Our battle is not with other people. So important. Because we're in a battle of intense fury and we're fighting the wrong enemy oftentimes. And he goes on to tell us who the enemy really is. It's not with flesh and blood, but rather it's In fact, he mentions four levels that together represent the demonic enemy, the community of enemies that we fight. It says here, first of all, that there is the rulers, the big ones, the ones in charge. And I'm just kind of drawing some conclusions here. Very possibly these are maybe Satan's direct reports, the rulers. The second level here is authorities. 
Maybe these are regionally divided amongst the nations as he plans to destroy humanity. And then he goes on to say there's cosmic powers, the third level. And then spiritual forces of wickedness. These are all very specifically mentioned, not flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities. And I could, man, I could stay there for a while and give you a lot of deep, dark detail. I'm not going to do that. It's not necessary. I'm not going to pay, as Mr. Lewis reminds us, that much attention to all of that. But I think I've said enough for you to understand. This is pretty serious. Wow. I mean, now that, now that I really take a moment to think about it, I'm fighting with people and yet there are rulers and authorities and there are uh, uh, cosmic powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Wow, this, this is serious. One commentary says it like this, and I think it's a really, really good summary. So I'm going to read it to you. The scripture is clear about Satan's very real and personal existence. He was once the chief angel, the anointed cherub, the star of the morning, who sparkled with all the jewels of created beauty until he rebelled against his creator and tried to usurp his power and glory. Satan first appears in Scripture in the form of a serpent as he tempted Adam and Eve. Jesus not only spoke about Satan, but he spoke to him. Paul, Peter, James, John, and the writer of Hebrews all speak of Satan as being a personal being. We see him opposing God's work perverting God's word, hindering God's servants, and hindering the ministry of the gospel. He brought sin into the world. As 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says, For we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The Bible refers to the devil in such personal names as the anointed cherub, the ruler of demons, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the great dragon, the roaring lion, the vile one, the tempter, the accuser, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Fifty-two times he's called Satan, which means adversary. Thirty-five times he's called devil, which means slanderer. This fallen archangel and his fallen demonic host have been tempting and corrupting mankind since the fall. They're an evil, formidable, cunning, powerful, and invisible foe against whom no human being in his own power has any sense the resources to match. Evidence of Satan's great power and deception can be seen in the fact that despite the faithfulness of God to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, despite the miraculous sustenance in the wilderness, despite the incredible victories that were won, and despite all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, Satan still was so powerful that he was able to deceive the Lord's people into believing that Jesus Christ the Lord was a false Messiah and prompted them to crucify him. Yes! We are involved in a war of intense fury. And it's not with flesh and blood. Now, where is the war taking place? Well, the Bible says here in verse 12, the war is taking place in the heavenly places. I think why that's so important for us to understand is that it is a spiritual battle. And the supercritical issues that we oftentimes focus on in life are not the issue. We're fighting a spiritual battle here. And yet at times we seem to think it's finances, it's the economy, it's, it's Wall Street, it's, it, it's, it's, it's that. You know, that, that's the emphasis. Or maybe it's education. It's to make sure that our kids get the very best education. So let's put them over here in this school. Let's do this with them. Or let's, let's encourage them to go here. And we're fighting the battle on a financial realm or, a, or an education realm. Or oftentimes I see it fought on the athletic field. You know, we just want our kids to have the most opportunities to play sports and have the greatest opportunity to, to go as far as they can in the athletic world. And that concerns me today that we are fighting those battles that are so insignificant compared to this incredible spiritual battle being fought in the heavenly places. I see a massive neglect of spiritual priorities. Massive. And that's where we fight our battles. In the spiritual realm. And that is where we will win the battle. In the spiritual realm. That's where it takes place. 
Now, what is this war all about? Well, notice the beginning of verse number 12. It mentions this thing of wrestling. It says, we do not wrestle. I mean, that's kind of interesting that he uses that analogy of wrestling. Now, I've never been a wrestler. I didn't attend a school that, that really had a wrestling program. But I do know this. That is very popular, and there's an uprising in the popularity of wrestling. In fact, recently we've been contacted by someone willing to in, kind of invest some money in our college if, if we would consider starting a wrestling program. I know Hot Springs High has a, a wrestling program, and many high schools and colleges regionally are, are big on wrestling, and so it's got a lot of popularity. But I'm not so knowledgeable, knowledgeable about it, so I had to kind of study just a little bit about wrestling as I saw that this is, this is very important. This is what the war is all about. Wrestle. Do you have any wrestlers here, by the way? Anybody that's wrestled in high school, wrestled in college, got a wrestler there? Anybody else familiar with? Got a couple of wrestlers. Not many, though. But we do have some. Wrestling. Think about it. Wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. You know, UFC has gotten so popular because, and again, I don't know what all is involved in it. I'm not, I'm not super into it, but I do know that it is very close hand-to-hand combat. In fact, oftentimes I look at those dudes' ears and think, eh, I don't want no part of that, man. <laughs> that don't look anything like a normal ear right there, you know. Something different about wrestling. It's, it's, it's fought hand-to-hand combat. It's very close. It's fierce. It's intense. Interesting fact about wrestling is if you are quick and skilled as a wrestler, you can beat somebody stronger than you are. Now, there's a message there in that because, you know, I'm thankful today that though I know in my own strength, I am not stronger than this enemy I'm talking about. This enemy we are becoming familiar with, this enemy we are learning how he works and the truth about him. I know one thing, I, in my own power, I could not beat that enemy. But I guarantee you one thing, I have got some knowledge found in God's word that I'm sharing with you this morning that is making me more skilled. And even though I'm smaller than my enemy, I can defeat my enemy because I have a God that's bigger than any challenge I may face. So I'll say to you again, we are involved in a war of intense fury. Who is this war with? Satan and his demons. Where is this war taking place in the heavenly places? And what is this war all about? Hand-to-hand combat. Serious. It's important. It's intense. And it's a war. And I stand before you this morning, having bathed this message in prayer and, and been on my face before God for several days and even truthfully probably a couple of weeks knowing that, that I am stepping into a war zone and that I need God's help and his protection and your prayers. And I'm not afraid this morning to, to stand and preach this wonderful, amazing truth. Number two, I want you to see in Scripture that the enemy is scheming to knock us down. The word scheming is an, is an interesting word, and it's found right here in, in verse 11. As we move through this passage, look on the screen, it says, to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, next week, we're going to begin talking about the armor of God, and it's so incredibly cool and interesting and, and, and so uh, just precise at how God is giving us a plan by using the armor of a Roman soldier, by taking that visual of a Roman soldier and the armor that he would wear and applying that in a spiritual way, it's phenomenal. That's next week. But this week, the emphasis is on that verse in a different way. So pay attention to the words, put on, stand, and schemes. Put on. First of all, put it on. Put on what? Well, we're going to put on the armor. Well, well, how do I put this on? Where do I put it on? How long do I put it on? Well, the word put on is, gives the idea of permanence. In other words, pay attention, church, put it on and don't take it off. Reminds me of my mother, her words in the wintertime when I would leave the house. And by the way, we hardly spent any time in the house ever. No cell phones, no video games. And all we had was concrete raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. But I'll tell you, there's a whole lot you can do on concrete and sand gravel. And we played outside after school until it got dark every day of our lives. And so when it was cold, mom would say, put your coat on, son, and don't let me see you take it off. 
And she had a growl in her voice. I mean, she was serious. In fact, I remember explicitly being on the, play, on the playground and wanting to take my jacket off, but thinking those eyes were seeing, looking somewhere. And I wasn't going to take my jacket off. Put it on, son. And don't take it off. You see, this is a battle that is not something you can take lightly or casually or just feel as if you can ever walk out of your house without this armor on. I got this. It's okay. This will be a light day. This will be an easy day. Put it on and don't take it off. Secondly, the word stand. This is an interesting word. It's a word that tends to have some authority to it. It's as if the scripture is saying here, I want you to put this on. Don't take it off. I want you to stand. In other words, draw a line in the sand. We need to be Christians who are willing to take a stand. We desperately need this. I feel as if sometimes even I have, have fallen prey. And I confess to you today, just to make sure you understand the spirit in which I'm speaking this, that oftentimes we have just gotten wishy-washy. And maybe it begins with the pastor just feeling as if, you know what, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to speak uh, these words that, that would, would, would uh, be stronger, that maybe people can handle. And this is just something maybe I can avoid. And, and we look to sort of wash down what the Bible says. And I challenge you. Are you convicted about things ever? I sense that we're not convicted about things. Not drawing a line in the sand, standing for God, being a man or woman of righteousness. And so I challenge you at this moment in the message, in Jesus' name, men and women, stand for your family. Stand for God's priorities in your home. This is so important, especially as we're raising children. Because the enemy is scheming to knock us down. Oh, listen, did you know the devil has a scheme for everyone here today? The devil has a scheme for every child in our children's church this morning. The devil has a scheme for every baby in the nursery. The devil has a plan. He's building a plan. The plan is to defeat you and to destroy your life. And the way he's going to come at you is going to be different than how he might come after the person sitting next to you. You see, he knows where you're vulnerable. He knows where you're especially tempted, maybe where you're weak. So the enemy is scheming to knock us down. Now, how does he do that? Well, I think there's three words to describe how Satan comes at believers. So let's, let's just go to Scripture. We're getting to know a little bit of the truth about our enemy. So truth number one is Satan disguises himself. The word disguise is the first way that he comes at believers. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he's probably going to come as if he were a good person, but really he's a bad person. He's probably going to come sounding like he's telling the truth. That sounds good. Makes sense. No wonder. Sounds like it's truth. But it's really a lie. If you think for a minute that Satan is going to walk up to you, tap you on the shoulder and identify himself. Hey, Adam, uh, my name is Satan. Isn't it interesting? I just chose Adam. <laughs> the first one he came at. Hey, Adam, listen, just to let you know, I'm going to destroy your life. So just sit back and just expect it. Enjoy it. I'll let you know when I'm coming. It's going to be cool. You're going to, it's going to be quick. You're going to die quick, but it's going to be silly. Satan doesn't do it that way. He's cunning. He's crafty. He disguises himself. I want to give you five favorite disguises of the enemy. Number one, he makes little things big. It's the first disguise of the enemy. I can assure you, and my wife can attest to this, that in our 31-year marriage, and we've had a great marriage, a good marriage, uh, I'm so thankful for 31 years with my bride. I'm grateful that God has helped us by His grace, you know, to keep our vows and to stay married and to you know, fight through something. I'm grateful for all that, but I'm going to tell you something. He's been actively involved in destroying our marriage. And this first disguise is where he has come at us the most. 
by making little things big. Now, just to go on the record and to be very transparent and vulnerable to you, I'm not one of these preachers that's going to lie and say, I've never been in a fight with my wife. I've been in many. A couple this week. And if you could be a little birdie in our home, if you could just kind of hide in the closet and listen this week to my wife and I's little spats, okay, fights, arguments, raising of voices. Thank God for Valentine's Day. It's going to help a lot. <laughs> Looking forward to the evening. I assure you, you would say this. You'd probably come out of the closet and say, uh, Eric, Carol Ann, um, really? I mean, you guys are really fighting about that? Really? That, 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 that's not that big a deal. This is how Satan disguises himself. He'll take something little and he'll make it big. But secondly, he takes big things and he makes them little. He disguises himself this way. Oftentimes, Satan will get us to take things that are most important in our lives and in the unity of our homes and our relationships with our wives and kids. And it'll get us to believe that, oh, hey, listen, hey, where it's at is, you know, in, in, in materialism. And man, that's where it's at. And, and, and that, where it's at is in sports or it's in money or it's in things or it's in education. Hey, that's where it's at. But I'm going to tell you something. I've, I've met many a, many a father, many a husband who doesn't spend five minutes praying with his family a week. And can I tell you, there's nothing more important and better for you to open up the disguise of Satan than to take five minutes with your wife and pray. That's bigger than buying her a dozen roses, even though you should buy her a dozen roses too. Amen? I think about the importance of time. How big time is. Do you know oftentimes Satan disguises himself to get me to think that, you know what, I don't have to spend much time with my family. I can, I've got a lot going on. I'm busy. I've got extra work I need to do, and they're calling, and this is calling, and that's going on in that league, and that league, and that golf course, and that, and that softball league, and this, and that, and the other. And all of a sudden, I've put my family on the back burner, and before long, Satan's come in and made wreckage of some things, and I'm thinking, man, I, wait, what's going on? Well, well we, we don't see you. We don't spend any time. What's well, a big deal? It's not, time is not all that important. And it's as if we have forgotten that at the end of the day, our kids probably won't remember much of what we bought for them, but we will remember the, they will remember the time we spent with them. Time. It's a big thing. Prayer. It's huge. Attending church services once a week, is that really all that? It's huge to do that with your family. But Satan will make big things little. Thirdly, he gets us to carry tomorrow today. Oh yeah. Man, this is, this is where that song, God of Angel Armies, is so important because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, fearfulness is a tool that Satan uses against us. What's going to happen? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this? What's going to happen? What, what if the doctor says, what's going to happen if this happens? What if they, that my kids, what, what if? And we, we worry about tomorrow today. I love Matthew chapter 6. Man, I'm just going to put it on the screen. I'm going to let you rejoice in this, bathe in this, bask in this. Listen, this is awesome. Because I'm going to uncover Satan this morning big time. Listen, therefore Jesus says, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Don't miss those words. They, 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 they are repeated several times. Don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you drink. Don't be anxious about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than raiment, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than a sparrow? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. 
Yet I tell you, listen to me, God says, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Therefore, here it is again, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He gets us to carry tomorrow, today. Number four, he gets us to carry yesterday, today. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've messed up. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said about me. 20 years ago, my mom, 25, my dad, 26, my friend, 27, this church or that pastor. I mean, you don't have any idea. Listen, this, this happened, that happened. And we look back in bitterness... At yesterday, so many people are trapped in yesterday. Satan wants you to keep living in that thing. This week, if you've been reading along with the church's Bible reading calendar, you've been blessed by the life of Joseph, early part of the week. Joseph, in that incredible story of his life in Genesis, beginning in right around chapter 36, 37, 38, Joseph is is is. His family turns his back on him. They lie about him. They beat him up, throw him into a pit, sold into slavery. He goes there and does really well and rises up in the kingdom. Then he's lied about those from those who he was serving. And then he's thrown into prison. They were doing good things for those in that prison and then not remembered when they got out. And yet at the end of Joseph's life, we see a man... That did not look at yesterday. In fact, at the end of his life, it speaks of a boy that he had that he named Manasseh. And if you look up the word Manasseh, it simply means this. The Lord made me forget. How cool is that? I say that to say nobody here probably has had it as bad as Joseph. And yet Joseph, with no bitterness, looked back on his life and yesterday and all the tragedies which he had many you simply realize that, you know what, I'm not going to live with bitterness and unforgiveness. I'm not going to fall into that trap of Satan. And then number five, he gets us to live apart from God's word. It's a disguise. In fact, I wonder if we could write a book together as a church family. We'll call it this, the top 1,000 things that keep me from reading God's word. Oh, there's a 1,000. I promise you. There are a thousand reasons why we leave the house, we, 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 we barely read it, or we never get through it, or we don't take time for it, or we skip reading, or we skip church, or we skip small group, or we skip studying God's Word. I mean, it, hey, listen, Satan knows the answer is in this book. He knows that. He knows God's Word is powerful, it's quick, it's strong, it's, 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 it's got every truth that we need to survive his onslaught. So he keeps us from reading it. And there are, in studying it, and there are a thousand things that come in between us and God's word. Some of you may be saying, well, I didn't know this thing was about Satan. I thought it was about my mother. It's not about your mother. It's not about any person. He not only disguises himself, but he divides us. The second word is divide. He, he got between Adam and Eve and God. He got between Job and his friends. He got between Paul and Timothy. He divided Paul and Silas. He got between Ananias and Sapphira, Judas and Jesus. And he'll get between us and those we love in our home and in our church. Because that's how Satan works. He disguises and he divides. Divide, 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 divide. In fact, if I was speaking to a group of pastors and they asked me what is the hardest thing about being a pastor, even of the same church for 27 years, I would say the battle against division. 
I would say the hardest thing that I've dealt with by being a pastor is his, the enemy's commitment to dividing his people. It's unbelievable. I mean, honestly, I can see how pastors could spend the majority of their time just trying to keep people peaceful towards one another. Keep this guy not getting bitter against this guy and this guy not to, taking it wrong that this person really didn't mean what they... And it's just, it is a battle. In fact, when I go to the Thursday morning pastor's prayer meeting, oftentimes we, we split up into our little groups... And it breaks my heart to hear Satan's attack of division in our city amongst many churches, even including at times this one. As I works, let's just be clear and identify it. Because I am so committed to this church having love and, and, and caring for one another and not allowing Satan to dividing us. And thirdly, he disguises, he divides, and he destroys John 10.10 says it like this. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Listen, he's not wanting to cut your little toe off, okay? He's wanting to chop your head off, destroy your family, destroy our church. This This is the enemy. This is the truth about him. He wants total devastation. And as I see it, as I've learned through these years of ministry, the two places he attacks the most are clearly the home and the church. Clearly. Those two institutions for which we can grow the most spiritually, for which we can, you know, truly experience more of God's love and and, and more of God's plan in those two places, home and church. And that is where he's trying to come and destroy Too many of God's people living in the wreckage and war zone of the enemy and what he's done in their homes. So many churches without love. So many churches without truly caring for one another. May we as a church family ask God to protect our homes and protect our church from the enemy. To stay rooted in the word of God. May it never be strange for Anyone in our church to hear the words, I love you, and I'm concerned about you, and I care about you. May this actual point of this message cause all of us to be more concerned about reaching out to others in our church who we may not even know that well. One of the best ways to do that is through the prayer email on Tuesdays. If you don't get that, you need to get it. And if you do get it, how many times do you read through that email and come across two, three, four? Who is that? I don't know. They must go to the first service. I've never met them. And I get it. But how cool would it be if each week all of us in this room who are members of this body would say, you know what? I'm going to focus every week on that Tuesday prayer email and and I'm going to read one of those emails and then take the effort to maybe get an email or a phone number, in some way reach out and try to meet a need in that person's life. I just want them to know they're loved. I've been challenged personally this week by Jerry Greer and his wife Marie, member of our church who has brain cancer. And she's been through going through radiation and chemotherapy, and it has hit their home hard. And man, I've just been so burdened because I know a lot of people don't know Jerry. He preaches at the jail every week and he's very much involved. And, and I know Butch, he's been instrumental in reaching out to your son and being a blessing to him. And he loves getting praise for Garrett. And he's there preaching the gospel. And he's just not super well known in our church. But I want you to know he's somebody who really needs a lot of love right now. Well, what do I, what do, I do? Wouldn't it be strange if I just reached out? You could just say, my name is Eric. I know you probably don't know me, but I'm one of your brothers at Gospel Light. Just want you to know, I love you and I'm praying for you. It would literally blow his mind and probably give him such assurance during this incredibly deep valley that they're navigating their way through. I say this not reproachfully. I say it lovingly. This is what our church needs. This is what keeps a church together. This is what keeps Satan at bay from dividing us. That every time he tries to, another Christian is reaching out and saying, no way, man, you're loved. We've got your back. We're cooking that meal. We're going to pray for you. We're going to make sure you're okay. 
I confess to you, I've not done the best job as your pastor for these 27 years. So many distractions and things even that have kept me from probably being everything that I should be. But I'm more determined than ever to not letting Satan Satan divide this church. You know why? Because I believe church is one of the greatest resources to spiritual growth there is. I do. I think coming here on a Sunday morning can be so encouraging and uplifting and the worship and the fellowship and the announcements and the preaching and the invitation and the response time and the, and the hanging out time after. I mean, this hour and a half to two hours a week is so encouraging for us to be able to come together. Man, I loved the new member orientation this week at my house. One of the first things we do is we have some of those new members stand and just testify Hey, just share who you are and where you're from and how you came to gospel life. Man, it's a life changer to hear them stand up one after the other and share. Not about the preaching. Oftentimes, every now and then, you know, it's usually after they say a few things then, oh yeah, and your preaching's okay too. Most of the time. Just man, I just tell you, we've, we think we finally found a church where we're loved. I just feel like, you know, this is, We visited a lot of churches, but we just feel like there's something different about gospel life. And the majority of people that join our church have already gotten connected to a small group. So they're already being shepherded by somebody in this building, not by me. Oh, I'm shepherding in other ways, but it's incredible to hear these testimonies. One of the people that joined in the, is joining in the first service, they stood up last week. It was so cool. And they said, you know what? We came to the second service one time. I don't know. We woke up late. They drive an hour to go to our church. One hour. Every Sunday. They were here this morning. First service. They said, we drive an hour. We got there for the second service. We sat down and we thought, where are our people? We miss them. So I told the first service people, I said, man, listen, it is so important that we understand And by the way, I'll say this to the second service people, that even though we're not two churches, we're one church, but let's face it, church. You know, if you go to the first service, usually you know more people in the first service. You go to the second service, you know more people in the second service. So it's so important that whatever service we attend, that we're reaching out, loving people, making sure they feel comfortable because that's kind of what they're thinking. Amen. Number three, and I'm done. The third thing I want you to see here is we're involved in a war of intense fury. The enemy is scheming to knock us down. And finally, in closing, we can only be strong in the Lord. We can only be strong in the Lord. Listen, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, before we have our response time, I want to jump to Israel. Can we go to Israel real quick? Would you come with me? You ready? This is a free trip, by the way. We went to the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah was where David killed Goliath. What a story, right? An amazing story in in, in Scripture. In fact, I'm going to read you just a portion of that before we watch a short video. Listen to this in Scripture. And I I want you to understand why I am saying that our final thought today is we can only be strong in the Lord. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of of the air and to the beasts of the field. Let's just stop in that passage right now. And let me take you to that valley. Just take a look at where it took place. Somewhere right here. Take a look. Okay, you're standing here. Let me read the scripture and see if after you listen to Hannah... Where you can pinpoint the places. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and they were gathered together at Succoth, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Succoth and Azekah. Where are we? Succoth, Azekah, around here, and in Ephes Damon. We think that's that petrol station. Okay, so we think that's there. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and pitched by the valley of Elah. This is it. They pitched somewhere here, maybe up this area here. So you can see, you've got Saul, Israel on this mountain. Remember, Bethlehem's just across here. Where did David come from? Jesse sent him and said, I want you to take these. And he was always teaching David lessons about honoring authority. Go see your brothers. And by the way, take these cheeses to the captain. 
Always honour authority in your life, David. That's why Dave, that Jesse was a great kingmaker. Always... You see the, that little brook right there that's where Brother Baxter's standing? More than likely, that's where David took that stone and picked it up. Placed it in that slingshot. A stone? Listen to these words from David. David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The Lord, the, the, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, I'll cut your head off. I'm going to give your dead body to the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now let's put the next verse on the screen. Are you ready for this? Sounds like a pretty confident fellow to me, doesn't it to you? Here's why he was confident. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, church. You see, we cannot do this in our own strength. It is only in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we should look at our strength as a weakness. A weakness. I mean, we should be humble enough to say, not this, I got this. I don't, look, I'm preaching. I've got this. I'm spiritual. I've got this. You don't understand. I know, I know I can handle this. I know I've got this. You're the nearest to falling. In fact, Scripture is very clear about pride. But when we say, I can't do this, I don't have it. I'm a wreck without His strength, without His power, without His armor, without His might, without the Word, without prayer, without God's people. I don't know where I'd be. You see, the battle church is the Lord's, and it is only in His strength. So God must give us strength. And so as we have this time of response, I'm asking you this morning to come to a place where you can surrender your strength and and, and say, God, my strength today is weakness. And I'm asking you to give me your strength. May I be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and not my flesh. Then we can draw that line in the sand. Take that stand and know that God has got this. And when we go through valleys and tough times, and listen, I want to tell you something. My my family's been there. We go through those times. But we're fighting a battle not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's the only way to fight this battle. Only way to fight this battle. Don't let Satan disguise you, divide you, or destroy you. Because God has a greater plan. Satan's schemes can be defeated in the name of Jesus. This morning, this is how I fight my battles. Amen. Every head battery I closed.